read Psalm 122, and I'm reading from the, the Living Translation. Uh, I thought it did a particularly good job on this psalm, although I do uh, want to deal with one, one thing I'm not sure it's real clear on as we go through this. But uh, Psalm 122 says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And now here we are, standing inside your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a well-built city. And then I'm not sure they got the quite the gist of the Hebrew in this last phrase in verse 3. It's seamless walls cannot be breached, but we'll talk about that in a minute. All the tribes of Israel, the Lord's people, make their pilgrimage here. They come to give thanks to the name of the Lord, as the law requires of Israel. Here stand the thrones where judgment is given, the thrones of the dynasty of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May all who love this city prosper. O Jerusalem, may there be peace within your walls and prosperity in your palaces. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, may you have peace. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek what is best for you, O Jerusalem. Last month, the United States moved our embassy from the city of Tel Aviv to the city of Jerusalem. Now, while that move was controversial in many circles, including in some Christian circles, uh, I'm convinced it was the right thing to do in light of both Scripture and U.S. federal law. And today I want to survey what that means, not because every TBFer must hold my view on this uh, and with that conclusion, but I want to demonstrate you don't have to be a crazy Christian to believe Jerusalem is and should be recognized as the timeless capital of Israel. And we'll show you how that relates even to your Christian life. Okay, Let's pray for teachability to God's word, Psalm 122, and also for those who protect and serve us. And... Uh, Dale, if you wouldn't mind, you're from way out of town, long drive to church today, um, lead us an opening prayer, pray for our teachability to God's word, God to work throughout the whole building, and then we always pray for those military and peace officers and firefighters who protect us, so uh, pray in that direction for us, would you? One, you'll save time every Sunday because you only have to iron the back of your shirt or blouse before you come to church, because that's all anybody's going to see, except for me. It will keep you a long distance from Ron Miller, who always sits against the back wall, but only so he can hold it up. So he's doing the, doing a nice thing for us. And finally, these aren't laugh out loud funny. They're just attempt to warm up your capacity for abstract thought. Just a little bit, Scott. Okay. You'll have a great chance to catch Pastor Brad's toupee if it falls off his head on weeks when he gets excited during the first hour of message. I mean, a few weeks ago, people said, man, you were so excited. Like, am I that boring most of the time? I mean, it must be pretty bad. But, uh, yeah, here we are, uh, anticipating super summer in here. We got super summer for the kids, but my super summer is going to start next week in here when we survey the life of Christ, A through Z. We got the 26 major events in the life of Christ. Uh, Jason connected with the English alphabet. A, angels announced the pregnancies of John the Baptist and Jesus, B, 
birth in Bethlehem, C, carpentry career, Nazareth, D, Dev descends at the Jesus baptism, and it goes on from there. So we're going to survey the life of Christ. It's been probably 10 years since we've done that. So I think it's about time we review that, okay? But before we think about the, the controversy uh, surrounding Jerusalem in light of her history and heritage, let's put all these things on the map. Uh, uh, some of us have been there, and, and, you know, I consider it such an incredible privilege and blessing to have actually been in Jerusalem. Tom, how do you feel about it? I mean, it's almost surrealistic we were there, and it's been a while, but uh, it's just such a privilege to have been there. But anyway, there's kind of your flat flat earth, you know, if you believe in that theory. But actually, they found out it was actually round. And, uh, you know, you kind of know where we are there on, on that. That's the other side of the world. And Israel, can you see that? Israel's that little area right there, kind of between Africa, Asia, and close to Europe. It's technically in Asia, of course. But if we project it like that, Israel's that little strip of land. It's a tiny little strip of land, but it's so strategic and always has been, always will be. If you put this Israel against the United States, it's like a little bit bigger than New Jersey. It's, it's not, Larry, it's not a real big piece of real estate. And yet it's, it's very strategic, both uh, spiritually and geopolitically. And we're going to be thinking about Jerusalem, which is in the bottom part of that strip of land. Now, what people don't sometimes remember until they go over there the first time is there are, there's nothing flat over there, uh, unless you're on the seacoast, right? You've got a ridge line on the west side of the river, Jordan River Valley, and you've got a ridge line on the east side, and Jerusalem is on right, right about there, on top of that mountain right there. So you always go up to Jerusalem, even if you're coming from the south, or from the north, I should say. Because you're going up. And you'll notice that above um, Psalm 122, the superscription says, A Song of Ascents. Uh, you have several psalms in this portion of the Psalter that were specially designed to be read as people were going up to Jerusalem from the north, south, east, or west, uh, especially for Passover, Pentecost, or Tabernacles, the three required feasts. We're going to look at Psalm 122 and also U.S. federal law and think about um, Israel is the capital of Israel, uh, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Uh, Psalm 122 breaks into two parts. Uh, it's sacred to Jews and Christians and has been for almost 3,000 years, actually uh, longer than 3,000 years. Um, believers are to pray for her and her people. So let's work through the first part of that, verses 1 through 5. Look at verse 1. I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. I can remember as a little boy in Baptist Sunday school learning a, um, that was set to music. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. You sing that because they wanted you to be happy to be at church. And I'm very much for that. Uh, just for your, I, I know people look at preachers as kind of like paid mercenary Christians, but I come to church for free. I come on Sundays and Wednesdays for free. I do not charge the elder board any money for being here on Sundays and Wednesdays. It's everything else I've got to do, including getting ready for Sundays and Wednesdays that I get paid for. But Sundays and Wednesdays, I got a, I went to church before as a professional Christian and was happy to go. And uh, although occasionally the pastor will step on your toes, occasionally people will say, you know, I'm kind of offended, Pastor Brad. I think you said something in that message that might have related to me. And I would say, I hope so. 
Uh, thank you. You're welcome. You know, that's kind of my job. We are to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. That's right. Now, according to the bylaws, which we don't really have any, we have to have a 90% vote of the deacon and elder board before you can move. So I know you think you're moving, but you know, you're going to have to get that, that in writing. So it's not necessarily going to have, happen. But yeah, uh, verse one is emphasizing that Jerusalem was the site of the house of the Lord. It was the site of the central sanctuary for ancient Israel. And we see some principles here. Uh, in the Old Testament, most of the Old Testament, Old Testament is the part of the Bible written before the life and death of Jesus, the first advent of Jesus as the Lamb, right, Michael? So it's these books, and the Psalms are written, this Psalms are written about a thousand BC. So when we're in the Old Testament, we're anticipating the coming of the Messiah. We have one major promise in the Old Testament, all human beings sin and they all die. One major promise in the Old Testament, God's going to send a Savior. And to show you what that looks like, he gives you a central sanctuary. There's only one central sanctuary. There weren't 18, or uh, our textbook at uh, Cameron, I think, says there's 36,000 Christian denominations. Uh, but the good ones are all centered on the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, the vast majority of them historically, for sure. But in the Old Testament, so you only had one central sanctuary. You only had one way into the central sanctuary. And sacrifice was required to approach uh, the place where God manifested his presence. In the New Testament, we don't have a physical central sanctuary. We have one Savior, anticipated by the one central sanctuary in the Old Testament, and he is the sacrifice. Christians disagree on all kinds of tertiary stuff, Sydney, but none of us sacrifice animals. There's not a single Christian denomination that sacrifices animals because we all understand that was partial, preliminary, pointed to something, someone much greater, the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, yeah, now notice this. It says, I was glad when they came to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Last week in Psalm 23, we said there were three major Hebrew words for God, but the one that's translated with all caps. Now, I, I usually use the New American Standard Bible. I've got it open here, but I, I read... The Living Translation, which is one I look at sometimes, and I thought it was especially good on this psalm. But the New American Standard Bible that I've got, when I look at verse 1 of Psalm 122, it says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And L-O-R-D, or actually in a slightly different font, is actually slightly smaller than the other text, but all the letters are capitals. The R is a capital R. The D is a capital D. And that's the translator telling you we're, we're translating the word Yahweh, not Adonai. We're translating the personal, the covenantal, the salvation name of God. We said last week in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, so he's going to meet my needs. That, that means the God of my salvation. The Hittites can't say that. Okay, uh, The Amorites can't say that. But someone who's come, whether they're an Amorite or Moabite or Jew, if they've come to faith in the promised Savior for us and the provided Savior, God is our Lord and He's our, He's our Yahweh. He's the, the God of our salvation. So it's very important you realize this is a psalm written by believer, an Old Testament believer, for believers, Old Testament or New Testament. We're on the New Testament side of the ledger. Now in the Old Testament, the system was set up with the central sanctuary 
with priests and Levites. Larry and I were just talking about Levites before church started. They taught the scripture. They led worship. They offered up sacrifices. In the New Testament, guess what? Amanda is just as much a priest as is Michael. Uh, First Peter is very clear that every single born-again believer is a priest. We have the privilege of representing ourselves directly before God. And rather than a temple, central sanctuary, what do we have? Every believer, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So you carry the Holy of Holies right in the center of your soul, wherever you go. Sometimes we conceal it by our attitudes and actions. We're supposed to reveal it. Uh, instead of a tabernacle, which was a movable central sanctuary, and then ultimately a temple, a building in Jerusalem, a, a, a stationary building, the temple, rather than a te- tabernacle and a temple, as we had in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, we have the church church. Isn't that like a preacher, Jason? Church church? I mean, am I stuttering or what? Capital C church, lowercase c church. Capital uh, C uh, church stands for the universal church. The universal church is the body of Christ. It's made up of every single believer, born again, regenerate believer in Jesus Christ from every color, country, culture, generation, denomination. It's much bigger than Tanglewood Bible Fellowship. It's even bigger than the Southern Baptist Convention, but don't tell them that. No, I'm kidding. It's, it's big. It's real big. It's multi-generational, you know, um, we don't have, uh, uh, what was I going to say there? We don't have a tabernacle, a temple. We've got the church church. We've got the uh, universal church that we are inherently a part of. And we also have the lowercase c church, which is the local church. And you know, I've, I've often said, most most uh, elder and deacon boards won't let their preacher say this, but Tanglewood Bible Fellowship is not the only good church in Duncan. We, we, we have a lot of good churches in Duncan. It's not necessarily the best church for everybody in Duncan, but it is a good church. It's got a 40-plus year track record. And uh, my elevator pitch for Tanglewood Bible Fellowship is Tanglewood Bible Fellowship is a group of born-again believers from a wide variety of denominational backgrounds united by our faith in Jesus Christ and a desire to grow and reproduce spiritually by focusing on the basics of Bible study, fellowship, worship, prayer, and evangelism slash world missions. So we have these differences between David's setting and ours, but we're fit together by our faith in his, the promised Savior, ours, the provided Savior. Now, on Wednesday nights, we've been looking at Third John, which is this little gem that's kind of hidden in the back of the New Testament. And it's been stressing that the local church is not a one-man or one-woman team. We all have roles to play. Being actively involved is expected of believers. But the problem in 21st century is it involves believers thinking like contributors, not like consumers. And increasingly, you know, I see people thinking about church more like a consumer. Uh, I just tell you, I'm, I'm loyal to a fault. I mean, I cry at supermarket openings and closings. I cry when, when Goodner's, the grocery store, Closed. I was I was hurt. I was deeply hurt, you know, and I'm still trying to get over that. I mean, I'm loyal to a fault, but there's one area where I have no loyalty, and that's dry cleaners. I will go to the cheapest, closest, most convenient dry cleaner. I don't want to have any personal connection with dry cleaners at a professional level. 
You know, I don't want to be attached to anyone. I'm going to go to the cheapest one. That's it. Uh, some people approach church like that, you know. And the, the problem is, in the first century, when the church gets started, you had one church in Ephesus, one in Colossae. If you didn't like the pastor, you were out of luck, baby. I mean, you know, and the pastor was Paul there for a while, you know. So, you know, and that did happen. So uh, beware of the consumer mentality. A church like TBF can't function if very many of us get that. And so I think by by the nature of the case, that kind of helps us there. But uh, instead of priests and Levites, the local church in the new in the church age has elders and deacons. And I've always thought of elders and deacons as kind of like captains on a basketball team, or I never played basketball, I played baseball. Captains on a baseball team. I mean, the captains are the first at practice. They're the last to leave. They hustle through the drills. They hustle at the game, and they urge all the other players to hustle. And you say, well, I thought that was the coach's job. It is, but the players kind of screen out the coaches. Uh, after a while, I mean, ask Ken. You know, if you got a couple of really hard playing, hustling, they may not be the most talented, but they work as hard as anybody uh, on the team. When Coach Wanger tells them to do this, that, and the other, and the captains look at the players and say, yeah, let's go do it, and they go do it, uh, suddenly all the players get more motivated. So uh, it's not about Brad or James or whoever the next pastor or youth, next youth minister will be, and we have no plans of leaving. But I, you know, uh, I always watch the elders very closely after every Sunday morning to make sure they don't have a secret meeting, you know, just to make decisions. <laughs> now, just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean I don't have real enemies, but I don't, I don't think the elders are my enemies. Um, but uh, tongue-in-cheek. But, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, somebody's been asking me now as I'm coming to my 30th anniversary of just different people I know in my hyper, I guess, cyberspace university. I mean, 30 years, that's a long time to stay, you know, in a small town in Oklahoma. And they say, how'd you do it? You know, and I'd say, you know, I think because uh, God led us here, number one. Number two, I think that the elders, the leaders, and, and I have the same basic vision for the church. Um, you know, the details we can dicker over, but, I mean, the big picture, we're on the same page. And... uh because the, the the leaders of this church have always been strong leaders. I mean, they've always led by example. And I think that's very, very important. Um, a question I like to ask, you thought we were going to talk about Jerusalem and we're getting convicting about uh, local church, you know? And I just thought I'd just drop this on you. And plus, I, the Spirit told me to write it down, although I scratched some of it out. <laughs> uh, the question I like to ask, you know, when we do the purpose, objectives, and goals message every year is, if everybody else at TBF was exactly like you and your attitudes, attendance, commitment, giving, etc., what kind of shape would the church be in? I think that's a fair question to ask. But here's a guy who's excited to go to the central sanctuary, excited to go not just as a consumer, but a contributor. Now, uh, deep thinkers, you know, like Doug are thinking, well, this is David talking, you know, in the Old Testament. How about now? How does this relate to Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem is important not just in the history of, of uh, Judeo-Christianity. If you take Ezekiel 40 through 48 literally, and a lot of us do, Jerusalem is going to be the capital of Jesus Christ's empire on earth after his second advent for a thousand years. And he's going to establish a super temple in Jerusalem. It'll be his seat of government. It will also be the center of a worldwide worship of Jesus Christ. Um, and, 
you know, it's all about who and what he is. And, and David knows who the Lord is uh, with an Old Testament awareness. And we know even more because we can look back at the finished atonement. The gospel is the good news that because Christ died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. A lot of Americans think that Christians just think we keep the rules better than they do, than unbelievers. Nothing could be further from the truth. By the works of the law, no one will be justified in God's sight, but through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So we're driven to the cross, and the scripture says, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works. Works are an effect. They're the fruit. They're not the root. They're not the cause of salvation. Faith is the empty hand that receives the merits of Christ. It's like the leper who says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. That's faith. And what does Jesus say? Be cleansed, baby. I mean, I'm happy to receive, uh, give you that healing on faith. Now watch this. When we say because Christ died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. But he's not dead anymore. Okay? That's the biggie. Okay? The, the best part of the good news is the crucified Savior has been bodily resurrected. And when we go to Jerusalem, Lord willing, next May, we'll go to the garden tomb. And you can go to a stupa in uh, Chiang Mai, Thailand, where they have part of the collarbone of the Lord Buddha. But we're going to go in the empty tomb, and there's no body parts there. <laughs> uh, his physical body was transformed. But Jerusalem is important, not just in the Old Testament economy, it's going to be important in the future economy. Here's a breakdown of Bible prophecy as I understand it. And not all Christians believe in a little millennium. It's a fairly common view. In fact, it's a more, it's the most common view in world Christianity that because, uh, although God promised the Messiah would rule and reign on earth before the eternal state came in, because Israel by and large, the vast majority of them rejected the Messiah, that those promises have been abrogated and they're being fulfilled spiritually now by the church. That's the major view of, if you just count noses, of more Christians than the view I'm showing you. But I'm convinced if you just take Revelation straightforwardly, Ezekiel straightforwardly, you've got a description of a 1,000-year reign where Jesus is going to have a temple in Jerusalem. And then at the end of that period... We get a whole new universe, and what's the capital city? And everybody agrees with this, whether you don't believe in a literal millennium or not, Lendl. What's the name of the capital city in the eternal state? The new Jerusalem. So don't stick uh, what we're saying about Psalm 122 as ancient history. It was written a long time ago, but it uh, talks about the importance of Jerusalem then, and it stays important all the way into eternity. That's verse 1. Look at verse 2. And let me go back to my, uh, just for today, only to the uh, living translation here. Verse 2 says, And now here we are. This is a real place. Standing inside your gates, old Jerusalem. Uh, some Christians, and you have to go to seminary to learn how to do this. But, uh, some Christians want to allegorize Jerusalem almost everywhere in Scripture. But here you can't do that. Nobody can do that because he's saying, hey, glad to go uh, to the central sanctuary. Here we are right in the city. It's a physical city. And when we show you some pictures of uh, Jerusalem in a few minutes, uh, you're going to see it's a real real place. And it, the scripture talks about, Murray, real places, real people, real events. Uh, you can read in the Bhagavad Gita about events that never happened, uh, that talk about places and people don't exist. 
you can take the Book of Mormon. You can read about people and events and places that don't exist, never happened. But you don't have that uh, in the Scripture. Look at verse 3. Jerusalem has a unique look and unique physical characteristics. And let me just uh, uh, differ, differ a little bit with the way this translation handles verse 3. Jerusalem is a well-built city. And then the new living train, or the living translation says, its seamless walls cannot be breached. Now, the Hebrew literally says that Jerusalem is well-built city, which is compact together. Now that's what's called an idiom, kind of like, uh, Oklahomans will say, hey, look out there, look out there, Abby, it's raining cats and dogs. During a real hard thunderstorm, we're going to say it's raining cats and dogs. That's an idiom. It's an expression that has a set meaning that people understand that's not literal. It doesn't, you don't really have small mammals coming out of the sky, right? Joanne, when it rains, it rains in Kansas City too, right? When it rains really hard, we say it's raining cats and dogs. That's an idiom. Uh, whatever this means, Jerusalem is compact together, or compacted together, you could translate it. It's an idiom. I think it's an idiom. It doesn't mean what, uh, uh, it's seamless walls can't be breached, uh, during David's time, it was impossible, humanly speaking, to breach the walls, and even under Solomon's time. But I don't think that's what it says here. That's true, but it's not what it says. Uh, Jerusalem is compacted together or compact together. I think it means it's solidly joined together and is secure against attacks, something like that. One paraphrase says it's built as a place for worship. That's not what the Hebrew says. I mean, that is true. It's built as a place for worship. But uh, I think you're stretching there, right? We'll show you some pics in a few minutes. Look at verse 4 and 5. It's the site of the central sanctuary. It's an actual physical city. It has a unique look and physical characteristics. And now verses 4 and 5, Jerusalem was the site of the political capital of ancient Israel beginning in about 1000 B.C. under David. Uh, David made it his capital then, his political capital, as well as the place where the central sanctuary would be. Uh, look at verses 4 and 5 again. All the tribes of Israel, the Lord's people, the old covenant people of God, make their pilgrimages there for Passover, Pentecost, and uh, Tabernacles, the three required feasts every year. They come to give thanks. They come to give, not to get, right? Thanks to the name of the Lord. And that's all caps, the God of their salvation, as the law requires. There are three required feasts. It's interesting. In John 10, Michelle, Jesus goes to Jerusalem for the Feast of Lights. That's not a required feast. That's Hanukkah which is a non-Old Testament feast. The events that uh, it commemorates is after the end of the Old Testament, before the New Testament. It was a Jewish patriotic military holiday. I think he stood up for the national anthem, in my opinion. Okay, Or he wouldn't have been going to Hanukkah in December, a few months before he was crucified, when it's very dangerous getting anywhere near Jerusalem for him. And the disciples, are, you read it, after, not now, read it later. Uh, the disciples are freaking out. They don't want to get anywhere near Jerusalem because the last time they were there in chapter 10, they tried to kill him. So, um, yeah, so back to the text here. I'm reading from this uh, paraphrase. Here stand the thrones, not just the central sanctuary, but the, milita- but the government slash military leadership of David, his throne uh, and his co-regents uh, were there in Jerusalem where judgment is given, the thrones of the dynasty of David. The importance of the dynasty of David, which God declares himself in 2 Samuel 7, is seen in Matthew chapter 1. Look at Matthew chapter 1. 
I know that American Christians are allergic to biblical genealogies, and I get it until I found out that basically the genealogies are either literally fast-forward factors that move you from, uh, say, Seth to Noah, so you can kind of focus on the main things, or in this case, they establish the the legal dynamics of the uh, kingship of Jesus. You know, you start with... uh, Abraham, you start with David, uh, the uh, genealogy emphasizes that and lists all these gene- all these names. And the idea is that God in 2 Samuel 7 says, hey, I've already told you that I'm going to use the children of Israel in a special way, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it's only going to be, according to Genesis 49, the males in the tribe of Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, that will qualify to be the Messiah and the ultimate king. And in 2 Samuel 7, it's going to be family of David within that tribe. And it's also going to be someone who's born of a virgin, which really narrows it down. But you have this dynasty of David emphasized at the very beginning of Matthew just to deal with the obvious objection that a Jewish thinker would have given in the first century. Uh, Jesus has to be a Davidic descendant to even qualify to hypothetically be Messiah. So David... I mean, uh, Matthew just obliterates that issue by just listing that and giving you that. So go back to uh, Psalm 122. Now you've got the dynasty of David here, the thrones of the house of David or the dynasty of David. I love that. Now, that's the first part of Psalm 122. Before we finish the message and and, uh, the rest of Psalm 122, let's uh, do a little historical background of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, in 2000 BC, Genesis 14, we have Abraham interacting with a guy, a mysterious guy by the name of Melchizedek in Salem, which was the original name of Jerusalem. So that's important. But what's really critical as far as the sacred nature, I think, of uh, Jerusalem starts in about 1000 BC when King David makes Jerusalem the capital and later his son builds the first temple. Solomon builds the first temple in Jerusalem. Now, I know some of you were freaking out when you went through the handout. I mean, we, we try to, you know, give you more than you deserve in these handouts, you know, but, yeah, uh, yeah, I want this one. But, well, you, we, I know Dustin's a very good reader, so you're probably reading through all this and saying, oh my gosh, this is going to be a two-hour message, you know, right? This is more than I'm going to cover but on the back page of that handout in the handout in the bulletin, it gives you some of the, a lot of the major dates, and I'm just summarizing them here. But as far as history is concerned, in 1000, David makes Jerusalem the capital of Israel. The Dome of the Rock doesn't happen until almost 700 AD. The Muslims are too late. I mean, when they argue, you know, that uh, Jerusalem has no Jewish roots, they're totally obliterating history and scripture. Uh, first temple's there, destroyed by the Babylonians after prophets warned them it was going to happen unless they changed some things major. Uh, the second temple uh, was completed in 535, destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, so it's standing during the life of Jesus, renovated greatly by King Herod, by the way. But then for thousands of years, you've got the Jews exiled from Israel in Jerusalem, Uh it's interesting, Muhammad lived from 570 to 632 A.D., and by about 650, Arab Muslims have already conquered the Holy Land all the way into Lebanon and Syria. 
Uh, before 700 A.D., they finished the Dome of the Rock. We'll show you a pictures of the Dome of the Rock in a minute. The Dome of the Rock is not a mosque. There is a mosque on the Temple Mount due south of the Dome of the Rock. The, the Dome of the Rock is a commemorative building celebrating the victory of Islam over Judaism and Christianity. And they built it right in Jerusalem, right on top of the site of the first and second temple, on purpose, in part to make sure there's no more Jewish temples on the Temple Mount. It's also right over a fault line, and uh, it's all going to come down at some point. Okay, So that's a little bit of background. Now let's go to U.S. federal law. I'm not a lawyer. I used to play one on TV. As some of you have watched The uh, Young and the Restless. I was on a soap opera called The Old and the Helpless. And I played an aging lawyer on that for many years. I was really proud of that, that thing. Uh, but yeah, just so that you know I'm not making this up, okay? Uh, this is a law. In fact, let me just uh, maybe stay on the script here. Probably a good idea. The Jerusalem Embassy Act of 1995 was passed by both houses of Congress in October of 1995. The vote wasn't even close. The vote in the Senate was 93 to 5. You, you're a lot better at math than I am, Trey, but that's a lot. That's a big, that, 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 could we call that a landslide? We say, well, how about the House? The House voted 374 to 37. And there's a 38th guy who would vote against it, but he was asleep in the back and they couldn't get him to the vote. That's a joke, okay? The law went into effect, uh, as U.S. federal law on November 8th, 1995 during the first term of President Bill Clinton. And, uh, here's basically what it says. The act is the Jerusalem Embassy Act of 1993. And good news, folks, the uh, 1034 is right on time. Uh, the law is longer than this, but uh, Congress shall make the following findings. Each sovereign nation under international law and custom may designate its own capital. Okay? Hey, that's one. Since 1950... The city of Jerusalem has been the capital state of Israel. Uh, the city of Jerusalem is the seat of Israel's president. It's where uh, the prime minister lives. It's where the Knesset, the parliament is, and where the Supreme Court is. It's the site of numerous government ministries and social and cultural institutions. The city of Jerusalem is the spiritual center of Jerusalem, Judaism, as it is considered a holy city by members of uh, not just Judaism, but Islam and Christianity. But Judaism has the original... Uh, bragging rights, uh, you know, territorial rights. From 1948, when Israel, modern Israel started, till 1967, the Six-Day War, Jerusalem was a divided city, and Israeli citizens uh, of all faiths, as well as Jewish citizens of all states, were denied access to the holy sites. When the Arabs, the Jordanians, controlled East Jerusalem, Jews were not allowed Donna, to go to the Western Wall, uh, which is ludicrous and sacrilegious and horrible. In 67, after the Six-Day War, Jerusalem was reunified. And watch this. Since 1967, Jerusalem has been a united city administered by Israel. They provide all the security for all the faiths. And persons of all religious faiths, Muslims, Christians, and Jews, have been guaranteed full access to their holy sites within the city. That's a big difference. Now, here's the thing. Um, statement of policy. Jerusalem should remain as an undivided city. This is U.S. federal law. 
in which the rights of every, or each, every, I should say, I'm making it up as I read it, ethnic and religious group are protected. Jerusalem should be recognized as the capital state of Israel, and the United States Embassy in Israel should be established in Jerusalem. It was in Tel Aviv. No later than May 31, 1999. That's U.S. federal law since 1995. We're supposed to do this in 1999. But wait, there's more. Um, the law officially recognizes Jerusalem as capital, uh, capital of the state of Israel, calls for it to be an advised city, sets aside funds for relocation of the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv, um, to Jerusalem no later than May 31st, 1999. Um, all this is consistent with the fact that Israel's declared capital is Jerusalem. It's where all of the seat of government is, okay? But we got a fudge factor. Can you believe Congress would put a fudge factor on a law? Sydney, are you sitting down? You ready? Can you believe this? The law, that is the American Embassy, or uh, the Jerusalem Embassy Act of 1995, included a provision in which the President of the United States, he or she, could invoke a six-month waiver of its application and reissue new waivers every six months if necessary, in his or her opinion, based on national security grounds, which are not defined. Okay? This waiver from uh, when the law went into effect November 8, 1995, has had the waiver signed by President Bill Clinton multiple times, President George W. Bush uh I guess what, eight times two is it sixteen? That means every six months you have eight. Uh, President Barack Obama sixteen times, and once by President Bill Clinton, uh, by President Donald Trump, I should say. Even though here are their positions, um, Bill Clinton said he supported the principle of moving the embassy there um, during the campaign, and he attacked when he ran uh, against the elder Bush in 1992, and he attacked the older Bush, when he was running and eventually defeating him for president, for repeatedly challenging Israel's sovereignty over United Jerusalem. And candidate Clinton promised to support Jerusalem as the capital state of Israel, and then he signed waivers as soon as the law was passed every six months. George W. Bush, running in 2000, and boy, that was a big landslide. Thank you, Florida, you know, or whatever. Or maybe not thank you, if you liked uh, the guy. You know, George, what's his name, uh, George, not George. Gore. Gore, thank you. I knew it started with a G. Yeah, Al Gore, you know, he said he invented the Internet, so maybe we should have made him president. I don't know, but I don't know, but that's what he said. Um, but they say crazy stuff. George W. Bush said as he's running for president, quote, as soon as I take office, I will begin the process of moving the U.S. ambassador. It means he, he doesn't sign a waiver. That's all he's got to do. <laughs> I never got around to doing that eight years later. And President Obama said during his first campaign, Jerusalem is and will remain the capital of Israel. Now, when I finished all this, I realized I left Hillary out. So let's have her in there. Under this, this is a slide that says everybody in quotes, because Bernie, he's complicated. I'll explain that in a minute, but watch this. <laughs> Hillary Clinton vowed, this is a direct quote, to be an active, committed advocate for relocating the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. George W. Bush, John Kerry, who ran and, and lost in 2004, John McCain, who lost to, to President Obama, uh, they all said they were going to do this. And then this is a quote from Jeff, Jeff Jacoby. Though the nominees changed the quadrennial promise every four years to shift the American embassy in Israel 
uh, to the country's capital has been as consistent as old faithful. So uh, fast forward. Uh, June 6th of last year, June 6th, almost a year ago, roughly a year ago, today's the 10th, okay? The U.S. Senate, after President Trump signed the waiver, unanimously, it was 90 to 0. Now, Kylene, you know, nobody else here knows, but there's 100 members of the Senate. But that particular day, 10 of them were playing golf or something. I don't know. But only 90 of them showed up. But they passed a resolution, not a law, but a strong recommendation to President Trump. Number one, celebrating the 50th anniversary of the reunification of Jerusalem. Um, And that vote, and also affirming the Jerusalem Embassy Act and called upon President Trump to abide by his provisions, meaning move the, move the embassy to, uh, to Jerusalem. That vote included eyes by Dianne Feinstein and Bernie Sanders. Okay, keep that in mind. They both voted yes for this when they thought he wasn't going to do it because Clinton didn't do it, Bush didn't do it, uh, Obama didn't do it, so Trump's not going to do it, but let's use this against him, okay? Um, the re- it's just a fact, you know, not that everything he does is right, but this one is, you know, is a bad rap. On December of that year, this was in June, they 90 to nothing said, yeah, you need to do this thing. They all said that. On December 6th, uh, President Trump ordered the State Department to begin planning to relocate the embassy. And you would have thought the world came to an end. And on May 14th, just a month ago, it officially moved to Jerusalem, coinciding with the 17th anniversary of Israeli Independence Day. Now, after that announcement in December and just before the actual embassy move, uh, Diane Feinstein, who voted for the resolution back in June of last year, and Bernie both condemned the move as that the world's going to come to an end. Now, you know, we'll say more about that in a minute, but I will say this. Chuck Schumer said very nice things about it. So I'm totally nonpartisan here, as you know. Okay, let's look at some pictures before we finish Psalm 122. Jerusalem. Tom, there you are, buddy. You know where you are? What city are you in? If you say Cleveland, you make zero. We're outside of uh, Jerusalem. I think that's maybe the next to the last full day we were there, uh, last tour, and uh, just uh, very excited there. I know people hate for me to point them out, especially the back of their heads, but I'd recognize the back of that head anywhere. That's Pam. That's Gene. That's the guy from West Virginia who joined our tour. That's, I forgot his name. He's the tall guy in the back. Uh, that's Julie. That's Candace. That's Jonathan. That's my first wife. That's our Israeli guide, Asher. That's Tom. Here's a guy admiring my picture, a taking technique. Just another tourist. No big deal. Took this picture, too. This is the Western Wall, sometimes called the Wailing Wall. Took that picture. I think it's very nice. It shows you how tall this thing is. As I was telling Larry, that's like 60 or 80 feet. It goes another 60 feet down. And Homer's been there. You can go down an elevator and go that way. Under the surface, right, and see it, and uh, that's another. That's one reason you need to go back, Larry, so you can do that with us. Okay, I'll show you why this is so important. In a second, this is a wider shot. I didn't take this shot. This is just from uh, Google Images. The Temple Mount is is this area up here. That's where the Jewish temples were. But since just about six ninety, we'll say seven hundred A.D. round numbers, the Dome of the Rock is there. But this 
western wall is part of the wall around the Temple Mount that was actually in place when the second temple, when Jesus was visiting the, the second temple in the first century. So what's the big deal about the western wall? Well, if that is an artist's uh, rendering or kind of a uh, model of the wall around the temple, the second temple, the New Testament, the temple that we have in the New Testament, and you look at that part, the lower part of that retaining wall around the temple mount, as it's called, right there, that's what you're seeing Whoops, when you look at that. Okay, that is that. It's a hardcore, solid artifact of the second temple that establishes the temple's been there long before the Dome of the Rock, right? Somebody took a picture of me here. I'm praying there with my OSU cap. And uh, Orthodox Jews say that uh, if you pray to God anywhere, from anywhere in the world, it's a long-distance call. But when you pray from the Western Wall, it's a local call. And so people pray and they put their prayer requests in the crack. And I don't think God listens more to prayers that are in the crack than prayers, prayers that are, you know, from your living room or from this church. But, uh, when you're touching an artifact like that, it's an amazing, amazing thing and it's a wonderful place to pray. And it's really a beautiful sight. This is, uh, again, I didn't take this picture, but you kind of get the scale of it and you can see, and that's, you kind of go, uh, in here somewhere, and that's where the elevator goes down. You go that way. So it's an unbelievable thing. Now, I did take this picture, and I want you to show you show you the happiest camel in Jerusalem. You ready? That's a happy camel. I've seen a few camels, and they're not usually that happy, and they will spit at you. Uh, so, and don't don't you cannot take a picture, even if you're at Burger King during the break and the lunch. If you go out and there's a camel outside. You can't take a picture of it because Rahib wants you to pay him $5 to take a picture of his camel and 10 if you want to ride it for five seconds. So, But I do have this a very a rare picture. You probably have not seen this before of Christian archaeologists recently in in uh, historical terms. It was actually more like uh, 28 years ago, digging up artifacts from under the Western Wall. And this is uh, it's an amazing picture. Oh, that's the wrong picture. Yeah. That's Homer. Joanne Brennan, Bobby Dudley. Boy, I like that hairdo, Bobby. That's good. Who am I to be talking about hairdos? Brad Bystone, my dear bud, uh, Bill Dickinson, that's me, uh, when I had a much better hairdo. Breaking ground for this building. It was your, uh, do you enjoy the air conditioning here? You're welcome. I helped build it. <laughs> that's all I did physically, right? This is a bird's eye view of the Temple Mount. They call it the Temple Mount. It's the platform that was greatly expanded by King Herod, surrounded by this wall, and that's the courtyard of the western wall. The western wall is below that and down there, but that's the western wall's part of the wall that was around in Jesus' day. That's where the temples were located, long before the Dome of the Rock. Dome of the Rock's built there on purpose. Here's the mosque, I said, it's due south. That is a mosque. That's not a mosque. That's a commemorative building celebrating the victory of Islam over Judaism and Christianity. Uh, that's what it looks like up close. It's a beautiful building. It's an amazing piece of architecture, no doubt. And there's a picture I took of the Temple Mount with the Dome of the Rock. It's Jamie and Kristen right there. Now, here's the thing. As the law specifies or noted, after the Israelis reunified Jerusalem in 1967, they immediately 
took responsibility to provide security at all the major sites within the city of Jerusalem and the environs and allow free access for Muslims to go to their sites, Jews to go to their sites, and Christians to go to our sites. And when you go into the, to the Temple Mount, uh, or even to the, get to the Western Wall, you go through like a metal detector. It's like going through at the airport. Like they make sure you don't have any weapons and it's no big deal. But you definitely want that to happen. But this is the sign I took uh, at the Temple Mount. It just emphasizes, hey, you're visiting a holy place. And, he's, and this is Temple Mount. The Temple Mount's where the Dome of the Rock is, okay? Jews are not supposed to even pray up there. They can go up there if they get permission. But the Muslim clerics operate the Temple Mount under Israeli security protocols. And they don't, the Israelis don't tell them what to do. They allow them to do whatever they want to do, which means I've been to Israel three times. I've only been able to go to the Temple Mount once because the, the Mufti, the guy that runs the Temple Mount, the Muslim, he decides arbitrarily from day to day basis, trying to jerk the chain of Israelis, whether the tourists can go up there on a given day. I've been there once. But this is the Israelis doing their due diligence to make sure the Waf is the, kind of the, the the overall group, Muslim group that runs the, the Temple Mount, and the Mufti is the individual, the top dog of that. But this is Israeli uh, military and police power making sure Muslims have free access to the Dome of the Rock, and occasionally Christians can go up there too. Uh, this is what it looks like today uh, when you talk about East Jerusalem, East Jerusalem was, when it was divided, was the Muslim quarter and the Temple Mount, okay? And West Jerusalem, which Israeli, the Israelis controlled from 1948 after the War of Independence until 67 when they reunified the city, was what's called the Christian quarter, Jewish quarter, and Armenian quarter. Uh, the Jewish folks were not allowed to go into the Muslim-controlled uh, Dome of the Rock or Temple Mount area until 1967. If you understood that, if, I'm not sure I understood it, but I think I know what I meant. Uh, here's uh, a uh, front page. Uh, the day after, in May of 1948, Israel uh, became a uh, independent uh, country. State of Israel is born, and that's the uh, Palestine Post. This is the New York Times the day after Zionist Jews that feel like they should have the right to live in the historical lands of the Jews, the, the, the land of Israel, and for it to be a recognized nation. Zionists proclaim new state of Israel. Truman, President Truman, recognizes it and hopes for peace. Egypt orders invasion. More than you want to know, I'll give you a real short course on Israeli history. 1947, after the Holocaust and World War II ended in 1945, the UN proposed a, a homeland for Jews who wanted to get away from Europe for obvious reasons, and they su- su- suggested a partition plan that would give, and I'm colorblind, that's kind of bluish, and that's greenish? Tannish, okay. The UN divided this thing into, the, the Jews would have this, anything south of that is all desert, nobody really wants it, but you do have access to Aqaba, which is good. But that's, that was the original plan. Now what, no, Jerusalem was part of an internationally administered, controlled by the UN where everybody had access, supposedly. That's the, that was the original plan. The Jews said, yeah, we'll do that. The Palestinians said, no, we will not accept that. Uh, and as soon as 
they signed the papers in May 14, 1948, to become an independent state based on that assumption, that them controlling that uh, territory. They get attacked by Egypt, the Jordanians, the Syrians, and the Le- and, and Lebanon. They get attacked from, from three different directions. This is the Mediterranean. And incredibly, well, like three pickup trucks, a couple of pistols, and one helicopter. I mean, it was crazy. You had angels fighting these people off. You went from that, basically, to this. When the war ended, you've got the Jews controlling almost half of Jerusalem, but just barely holding on to a toehold. Uh, that's, that's when they get invaded. Uh, and I should say, that's, that's what it looked like when they get invaded. That's the worst of it after the invasion. This shrinks to this. They beat them off in just a couple of months, and they sign a ceasefire, and that map should include West Jerusalem there in the uh, the Jewish part. But it gets a little bit bigger. So that was the status quo, where Jerusalem divided, but Israel winning the first war, establishing their, trying to establish their right to exist, but Jews having no access uh, to their holy sites. Now, since the 1967 uh, Six-Day War, uh, this is what Israel basically looks like. Uh, this entire strip is controlled by the Israelis. However, what's called the West Bank. And Jason, here's the, here's the Jordan River, okay? You go from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. That's the Jordan River. It's a deep river valley. And when I hear the West Bank, I think the bank of a river is like, what, 50 yards on from the river, 50 yards off the river, you know? So I'm thinking, okay, the Muslims always want to control the West Bank. Just give it to them. It's just 50 yards along the river, right? No. The West Bank is a technical term for all of this. It's the heart and soul, including all of Jerusalem. And they're saying, well, we won't you know, recognize your right to exist unless you give us total control of that. And in fact, since 1967, Israelis have allowed the Palestinian Authority to uh, control most of the West Bank. And they've also allowed the citizens who live there, Palestinians, to vote and have seats in the Knesset, okay? Gaza is a whole different thing. Uh, people were saying, because Trump signed this thing and we're going to move the embassy, the whole Muslim world is going to go crazy, right? 1.6 billion people. Did that happen? No. The whole Arab world, 360 million people, going to go crazy. Now, basically, the Iranians are mad, but they were already mad. And Gaza, which had actually been occupied for security reasons until 10 years ago by Israel, by Israel, and they gave it back to the Palestinians, have since elected Hamas, which is a violent terrorist group, think Al-Qaeda or ISIL or something like that. The Hamas controls that, and the day that um, the president's daughter and the ambassador and all were doing their their uh, uh, things in Jerusalem, you had riots in the Gaza Strip because Hamas had told a bunch of people that the Israelis had all gone to Jerusalem. There was no guards uh, on the border anymore. You could go over there and everything would be fine. And they kind of manufactured some uh, uh, demonstrations. And they were wanting blood, and they got about 62 people, unfortunately, killed in those riots. But that's nowhere near Jerusalem. And that cut screen you saw where you've got I don't know what to think about Ivanka, but uh, myself, uh, but I'll give her the benefit of the doubt, which I'd give you guys. I mean, you know, you have split screen with her smiling at the embassy opening and then people being, you know, tear gassed over here. And it's like, 
Can you believe she's overlooking all these people being tossed, you know, tear gas and she's smiling? No, this is 75 miles away and it's, it's like it's happening in Oklahoma City and we're celebrating, you know, Duncan Independence Day or whatever. Okay, let's go to the second part of Psalm 122. Complicated topic. My the- my problem this week was, you know, if, if I had five hours, I could do this thing right, but I'm trying to do it in 50 minutes and so I'm doing the best I can. So yeah, back to Psalm 122. Jerusalem uh, sacred to Jews and Christians for almost 3,000 years, and now we are to pray for the people and the city of Jerusalem. Look at verse six and seven. Pray for the for, pray for peace in Jerusalem. I'm used to the King James. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for peace in Jerusalem. May all who love this city prosper. O Jerusalem, may there be peace within your walls and prosperity in your gates. Right. Uh, yeah, since, you know, it's interesting that from, um, you know, 70 AD is when the second temple was destroyed by the Romans, and then there was a second Jewish revolt from 132 to 135 AD called the Bakokva Revolt, where the last remnants of resistant Jews were trying to throw off the Roman yoke, and that was beat down very violently. So in 135, Jews became persona non grata for centuries in the in the area. They were forced to leave. And so you've got the great diaspora where the Jews have been out of uh, Israel and it hasn't been an independent nation for 2,000 years. But from that point, from 135 to this day, Jews all over the world, when they do Passover and other uh, get-togethers, will say, next year in Jerusalem. Whether they intend to go or not, but we say that just to recognize the historical heritage that they have as a people to that city. And since 1967, that is possible. They can go to Jerusalem if they can afford the airfare, and they can go to the Western Wall. Part of that is essentially not possible. right? Verses 8 and 9, believers are to pray for blessings on the godly people who live in Jerusalem. They're not all godly. Uh, many of them are secular today. For the sake of my family and friends, I'll say, may you have peace for the sake of the house of the Lord our God, the central sanctuary which points to Jesus and all that Judaism means as the glide path to the Messiah, I will seek what is best for you, O Jerusalem. So take this to heart. Boom, that was verses uh, 6 through 9. You don't have to be a crazy Christian to realize Jerusalem uh, should be recognized as the timeless capital of Israel. A quote from Rich Lowry who is a political commentator. This was from National Review. I don't think he's an evangelical Christian, however. But he says, talking about recognizing the formal realization, that recognition that Jerusalem is the capital. He said, the notion that Jerusalem is not the capital of Israel is an impolite fiction. This is Rich Lowry saying this. An impolite fiction honored by the United States for fear of provoking Arabs hostile to the very idea of the existence of the Jewish state. And I've always said, look, there's nothing you're going to do to make them any matter at us. Okay, now watch this. There's 1.6 billion Muslims in the world. There's about 360 Muslims in the Arab world. Okay, there's 7.4 billion people in the world. So it's about a quarter of the world population. But according to Pat Kate who lived in the Arab world for like 30 years, he said, as far as Arab Muslims, and I'm going to assume this probably applies to Muslims as a whole, 
Only about 5%, according to Pat Kate, of Arab Muslims are what he calls violent fundamentalists. 5%. Uh, which is a small percentage, but it's, a, it's still a pretty large raw number, right? If you do the math there. Uh, the good news is even with that 5%, I tell them in world religion this too, because it's just hard, hard, hardcore fact. Uh, 95% of them are not violent. None of them like our policy uh, re-Israel from day one. They didn't like Truman even sending an ambassador over there to Tel Aviv, much less us going to Jerusalem. But that doesn't make them any matter at us. And the violent fundamentalists are going to be mad no matter what we do, right? But, uh, yeah, uh, there there is a problem there. But it's wrong to vilify all Muslims, just like it would be wrong to vilify people who take the Bible seriously, seriously because the Ku Klux Klan quotes Bible verses or something like that, right? So, uh, yeah, but the idea that we're going to have to placate the violent fundamentalists, we can't do anything that might make them unhappy, is not a good way to do foreign policy, in my opinion. It's not a good way to live Christian life, frankly. You know what I mean? So that's what I say to that. But anyway, in closing, I'm convinced that the uniqueness and the holiness of Jerusalem should be actively recognized, not passively denied by trying to pretend like it's not really the capital of modern Israel, even though this will offend people. You know, our Lord Jesus loves Jerusalem, loved Jerusalem, loves it now. It's going to be important in his second coming, in his millennial reign, and in his eternal state. But he realized that quite often not everybody in Jerusalem was a good person. It was not a believer. And I cite this verse from time to time for various reasons. But just a few days before the crucifixion, this is Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, saying this about Jerusalem when he's in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who killed the prophets and stones those who are sent to her from God. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Okay, Jerusalem is not filled with perfect people. It never has been. It will be in the new Jerusalem. You get my drift, right? Uh, and it's wrong to assume that everything the Israeli government or the Israeli military does is necessarily virtuous or right. You know, they make mistakes too. But the idea that by pretending like Jerusalem's significance started in about 690 when the Muslims built the Dome of the Rock there, and that's where we have to start, is just not factually correct, it's historically incorrect, it's certainly not biblically correct. And so I think this move of our embassy, in my opinion, is important in its substance and its symbolism. Uh, the United States, the most powerful nation in the world, by moving its embassy to the city of Jerusalem, to West Jerusalem, by the way, okay, not not East Jerusalem, even though those cha- those lines don't exist anymore. So that's a non sequitur too that people throw at you. Uh, well, of course, it, it offends the Muslims. You know, because they don't like what happened since 67. Well, you know, the Jews controlled West Jerusalem before 67, you know, and that's where the embassy is. And the embassy we've got now is temporary. They're going to build another one, a big one, but it's going to be in West Jerusalem. But uh, we're just affirming the legitimacy of modern Israel as a nation state to determine the location of its capital. Uh, listen, when Brazil, this is several years ago now, decided to move the capital from Rio to Brasilia, were there riots? Did the, did the State Department kind of drag their feet? Oh, I, I'd really go to Brasilia where the chicks are than uh, Brasilia in the jungle. You know, that's where it's, the way those guys think. 
they may have thought that, but we didn't. We we went to where the capital was, right? We let the individual countries, right, decide their own capital, and Israel's got a right to do that. And I, I think it's a good thing we're going to do that. I think it's going to make peace more likely because it shows that the fiction that Israel's illegitimate, modern Israel's illegitimate, shouldn't exist. It's got no right to exist. It's just not correct, and it's certainly not supported by the United States. And I think all of this is consistent with its history and its heritage. So let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we do pray for the peace of the city of Jerusalem. We we realize it's filled with imperfect people, but I pray especially during this time of controversy that you might let cooler heads prevail according to your purposes and your plans and that uh, you put your hand in a special way on those who are believers in modern Israel and in the city of Jerusalem, especially those who are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I pray that uh, their faith in Jesus Christ would grow stronger and would have a huge effect on that city and that country. And we thank you for the freedoms we have in the United States uh, to pass laws like this and to be from a, from a pulpit to be able to teach Scripture and U.S. federal law side by side. As our Lord Jesus says, render under Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. So help us uh, to kind of clarify our thinking. And if uh, there may be people with different opinions out there than I've got, and that's fine. But I think some of these facts need to be stated and emphasized, especially now uh, in, in the aftermath of this very historic uh, and controversial decision. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.